Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now, this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Good morning, peeps, and welcome to Woke AF Daily with me, your girl, Danielle Moody, recording from the home bunker. Folks, I am very excited for today's conversation with our resident in-house doctor, Dr. Jonathan Metzel. Jonathan's new book, What We've Become, launched this week, and him and I are going to be having a conversation in person in Brooklyn on February 5th at 7 p.m. at Greenlight Bookstore. And, you know, in today's conversation, we delve into the ways in which we have vast differences, not only in this country between parties, but also in terms of our experiences as it pertains to freedom, liberty, and justice for all. And what what surprised me about today's conversation is how Jonathan's book really lays bare how white supremacy, privilege, and freedoms are wrapped around the barrel of a gun and have been. And if that is the position of the right, then how do we reposition ourselves and the conversation about Gun control in this country, gun control, gun reform, whatever it is that you want to call it. But what Jonathan's new book lays out is that painting the issue as a public health crisis doesn't provide us with the depth and breadth that we need to approach this issue. And sometimes, look, You can go at things right over and over again and wonder why 
you aren't making any progress or because you've been going at something the same way over and over again, be afraid to pivot because you've already expended all of this energy, time, research. And what Jonathan's book offers, and I just think that the entire conversation offers, is that we should always be open to the pivot, to the thinking about something new. Because if what you are doing is not working, then you have got to change course. And his book, What We've Become, is exactly that, a change in course, a shift in narrative, and an opportunity for us to see the gun reform movement through a different lens and through a different perspective. So coming up next, my conversation with our friend, Dr. Jonathan Metzl. Folks, you know that whenever we have the opportunity to chat with our in-house doctor, Dr. Jonathan Metzl, on his launch day for his new book, What We've Become, I'm so excited. Uh, Folks, if you are in the New York area uh, on February 5th at Greenlight Bookstore in Brooklyn, um, Jonathan and I will be sitting down in person for a conversation about his new book and about, you know, the state of the world and mass shootings and guns and all of those things. Uh, so do go to jonathanmetzel.com. You'll get all of the details I am sharing on social, all of the platforms. Jonathan, hello, my friend. How are you? Happy launch day to you. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a, it's been a thrilling, great and you know, confusing day. Uh, I did PBS last night. I did a couple pieces this morning. I'm just laying low here, uh, kind of waiting for all the other action to start. But this goes in all these ways. You know, you get a lot of, you know, feedback because your ideas are out in the world, which I think is really Mm -hmm. nice. I think, as I've talked about a lot here, this book has been really hard and challenging to Mm -hmm. write because, I started in one place and five years later, it took me to a place I was not expecting. I started off as a complete advocate for public health-based gun reform. And I still feel that way. I'm still a strong proponent of gun laws. Um, But it made me think that we're missing the point a little bit. I mean, that's kind of in part the point of the book is that um, we're understandably, I mean, the book is about trauma and what it does to, to families and communities. We're shouting about injuries and deaths, but the other side is just playing by a totally different playbook that we are not responding to whatsoever, um, which is a playbook about power and authority and judges. And over the course of my book, um, people on my side kept saying, you know, now by now 85% of people, um, want background checks. The support is great. But while we were doing that, um, the other side was um, overturning uh, public carry gun laws in 39 states. And um, we surpassed 500 million civilian-owned guns in this country. And the Supreme Court overturned even New York's public carry gun laws. And so there's a real disconnect between one side, which is arguing for health and, and morality, um, and, and I think this is on the side of right. I mean, I'm very clear about that. But the other side is playing by a power game. And I just didn't feel like the public health 
response was enough really to what we're facing. I really think we need to change really the terms of the debate and the structure and what we're advocating. So is it then to, because I guess to your point, the the public, and I remember when there was like the shift to the public health debate and I was sitting with other doctors uh, several years ago talking about gun violence and, you know, and how they wanted to reframe it and come from a place of heart um, in the same way that we would look at, you know, heart disease and cancer rates and, you know, and, and how they affect different communities. To your point, though, when you're dealing with a group, with the Republican Party, with MAGA supremacists who feel that their guns are their power, right? And they are absolute about it. And because of their absolutism, we have an epidemic in this country. To you, is it then that Democrats and progressives shift to a place of power? You know, is it is it to be like the Republicans, but for the greater good? What What is that? Without, you know, obviously we want people to pick up your book, but what does that mean in terms of moving from a place of heart to power in your in your mind? Well, there are two levels of that. And I admit in the book, and I'll admit right now that they are in tension with each other. They're not the same, but I think there are two ways we have to think about that. Um, one um, is that the problem that Democrats are facing is much bigger. Like cigarettes were a public health problem. People were smoking mm-hmm. in cigarette in restaurants. People were getting secondhand smoke. Um, and that that led to a public health intervention, which is let's hold the cigarette makers accountable. Let's show research that will convince people that secondhand smoke is a danger. Everybody has an aunt or a uncle or a neighbor who has lung cancer. Um, they're going to understand that. Same thing with seatbelts. Um, seatbelts, faulty seatbelts were killing people. Faulty cars were killing people. Everybody drives. At one point, everybody knew someone who'd gotten in a terrible car wreck. And we could hold the car makers responsible. We applied that model to guns. <clears throat> really, as I tell in the book, starting in the 1990s when that model made sense, because at that time we thought, hey, it's worked for all these other things. And it was totally reasonable to think it was going to work against guns. But the problem is what happened over the uh, you know subsequent decades was that, first of all, the gun industry was shielded from the kind of product liability lawsuits that would have made a public health argument really have teeth, which it, so it never really did that. But the other thing is guns are just a really fundamentally different entity than our cigarettes and cars. Uh, they tie into the racial history of the United States. They tie into really deeply North South politics. Somebody in the North can yell gun control now. And somebody in the South will say, you're oppressing, you know, my, freedom and liberty and all this kind of stuff. It just means something really different. And so a public health model that was coming from blue state America just didn't make any conceptual sense. And I think over time, those fissures get to be much greater. So that's the bigger part of the story, which is that that argument really was something that the NRA understood and liberal America didn't, which which is that, um, you know, they could use the public health argument to sow resentment in the South, like these people are coming after you in ways that played out, for example, in the pandemic. 
And it left us without adequate strategies for the bigger issues that were happening. The bigger issues were that basically the right and the South were using the gun issue to overturn state legislatures, kick out centrists, um, take over the judiciary, which it was huge. And so part of the story is a health argument really was glossing over what was happening, which was that red state America was sowing the seeds of authoritarianism using the gun issue. And to me, that's kind of the main argument of the book is that a health argument made it harder for us to see what was really happening down here in red state America, because health seemed like common sense to us, but health was a really useful foil for red state America to do something that the health argument was never going to give you an answer to, which was take over the judiciary, take over politics, and then use that as a, a missile basically to then take over blue state America. If you look at, for example, what happened with the Supreme Court last year. So that's, that's kind of the meta argument of the book um, is that a health argument we didn't see the we didn't see what was really happening, how that was being used in Red State America. But then the second layer of the book is that I do think there's an opportunity now. The NRA is kind of imploding on itself. People are really starting to wonder. I mean, here in Tennessee, we've had so many horrible mass shootings, and people are wondering, like, where do I go from here? And I think in Red State America, there's a hunger to say, give me something that I can use here. And coming in and saying background checks and red flag laws, that that shite don't fly down here. I mean, that is government intervention and government databases. And so the other part of the book is, I think we need a new agenda that actually speaks to who voters who are going to be really important in the election coming up, which are, who are like kind of blue and, I mean, I'm sorry, red and purple state people who want, an, who want an agenda that speaks to their concerns. And so ultimately, I also do offer a lot of practical solutions in the book for how we can strategize ways to change gun safety reform in ways that meets the interests of gun owners, basically. In other words, we're not against gun owners. That was a mistake that the New York Times made in the review of my book this morning. We're not against gun owners, but gun reform doesn't speak to their interests if we're rushing in and saying, we need government regulation. You need to actually answer their concerns in a much more structural way so that they can materially see how that might be beneficial to them. So those are the so two I, threads, but yeah, those are the two threads, I, but they're complicated. No, no, no. And, 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 and it's helpful. And I appreciate the way that you've laid it out. I have a couple of follow-up questions that I think may help people get a little bit more granular in terms of what it is that you're offering. So first, you know, when you say that what Republicans were doing in red states was seeding the ground of authoritarianism, right? Um, and and I'll, you know, echo that and add, you know, absolutism, that there is no room, right? When, it, when we're talking about authoritarian regimes, when we're talking about absolutism, there is no room for um, compromise, for conversation, for anything other than what is being dictated to. I wonder, however, because Jonathan, you and I have had conversations, you know, over the years where we lament the way that Democrats message. And I wonder if even us saying authoritarianism, is that too big of a concept and a word for people to understand what it is that the right had been doing while we were focused on changing hearts and minds? 
Well, here's a useful metaphor. COVID hit, half the country assumed, here's a here's a virus that's going to kill us as humans. We all are on the same side here. Um, but Red State America and Trump saw it as an opportunity to play on the fears that have been fomenting really for decades under the gun lobby, which is these blue state people are telling you what to do. It's the government kind of telling you what to do. And so we assumed that a health message was universal. Everybody was going to be on the same side about COVID. But the other side said, look, they're rushing in with the government and the government is going to control your health. They're going to take away your freedom and liberty. Your kids can't go to school. You're going to lose your job. And that plays to red state resentment and anxiety, which is massively, massively mobilizing. It gets people to vote. It gets people to push out centrists. It gets pe- it get, then when people get elected, it gets them to put in judges who are going to overturn, <laughs> you know, like in Florida, they put in an attorney general who is now banning <laughs> vaccines and stuff like that. So it leads people into pushes people that anxiety about liberals coming in to take away your freedom and liberty. Now, that sounds like a stereotype, but it sure is a prevalent one. And what I show is that's been building. It didn't just happen in the vaccines. It's been building over 30 30 years, really, as part of the gun debate. Um, And so again and again and again, um, the red state America would say, look, they're coming to take away your guns. And that would red state people would go out in droves to support people. And what the NRA and GOP did with that power is that they then put in place judges, like one judge I write about was like 35 years old. He'd never tried a case in his life in Mississippi. Um, His only criteria was he was a lifelong member of the NRA and he would vote for gun rights anytime. And that is all the way up to the Supreme Court. And so they had a model of using what felt for them like liberal overreach to really sow the seeds of power. Um, And that power was something that a health model was never going to never going to refute, right? Because they all of a sudden, there are all these lifetime judges who are supporting even the most seemingly ridiculous, you know, guns on campus, guns on park, in parks. And so the gun, the gun debate really created a, a, a kind of foundation of power that really pushed out any reasonable people. And, and again, the health argument, I, I believe in health, I believe in gun laws, but, but I don't think it's a counter- to what we were seeing in the South, which is guns became a vehicle for really structural institutional power. Um, and every time we would rush in and say, we need more government databases and stuff like that, they would just use it to <laughs> gain more power. And that was something that was never part of our calculus and, and still isn't in a way. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. 
Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jonathan, talk to us about, you know, the story that you lift up in the book um, is one that is based largely in race, right, mm-hmm. and and racism. And I think that oftentimes when we're having conversations, not you and I, I mean, like the bigger we are having conversations, we discount how race and racism plays into and is baked into the policies that are being offered. So can you talk to us about how in your meta, you know, layered plan, how you how you understand racism and race being at play? I mean, it's it's at the core a story about race. A naked white man travels from Illinois, where he really shouldn't have had guns. You know, this guy had been stopped by the cops a bunch of times. He'd gone to the White House and tried to jump the fence at the White House. He gets arrested, given over to the FBI. Is the FBI filed? The FBI says he shouldn't have guns. Um, and so part of the story is that if anybody else but a white man yanked this wanky, you know, they would have been dead or in jail. And so part of the story is about the privilege of the white male gun owner. This guy kept getting his guns back. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Like he kept getting his guns back. The cops gave him his guns back. His dad gave him his guns back. Even after the FBI, he got his guns back. So part of it was about the stereotype of the white male gun owner walking around in the world being seen as a trope of freedom and protector mm-hmm. and all this stuff in ways that other people just do not get that. <laughs> right. I said like, this would be a two page book. If it was a book about a black man, mm-hmm. a black man pulled this for five seconds and he's dead. And that, or, you know, that's the end of the story. And so I write about that a lot. So part of the story is about the body of the pre shooting white male gun owner, but then you know, something really important happens, which is he gets his guns confiscated. They give the guns to his dad. His dad gives him the guns back. 
And then he drives to Tennessee. Why does he drive to Tennessee? It's because in Illinois, he can't have his guns legally. But in Tennessee, he's a legal white man with a gun. There's no gun laws in Tennessee in a way. And so part of the story was the allure of his freedom, his privilege, his esteem. Like Tennessee mirrored his version of himself as like being a, a proud white male gun owner. So part of it was about um, how when he's in Tennessee, Tennessee mirrors his values because it reinforces his privilege as Im- is, you know, embedded in his body and his guns. And then he becomes a killer. And after the shooting, the state apparatus mobilizes to, in a way, support rights of men like him. The, the whole the, There's a gov- gubernatorial election I write about in the book a few months after the uh, shooting. And over, overwhelmingly, they vote in a governor, Governor Lee, whose platform was, we're going to have no gun laws. And so, in a way, the apparatus saw the shooter as a reflection of their values in ways that made it just much easier for this shooting to happen again. And so the third part of how race functions is at this structural level where it's, it's really just the institutions reward even the most extreme pornographic pathological instances of when, when it's so clear that these white bodies and white guns are killing black bodies, which is really the story. Um, we build these institutions that assure that this yeah. is going to happen again. It's an institutional story. And I just, you know, and I, and I will say, and, and thank you, because the way that you laid that out was just, you know, breathtaking. Because I, I, I have to tell you that there, for me, when I listen, when I read, you know, and hear these stories, this is America, fundamentally through and through, right? Like, this is that, the story that you reference, you know, what you're writing, this is the story of America. Mm-hmm. It is about murdering, subjugating, oppressing black bodies. Like that is it. That is the birth of this nation. It will be the death of this nation. And I, you know, and I and I honestly I have to say that I have um in this moment just like such clarity around the fact that like I don't think that anything will ever change. I really don't. Like I think that there will always be um I think that white men will always win in terms of this debate because fundamentally it goes back to the founding of this country about their toxic masculinity about domination about their exceptionalism and that in that entire fantasy uh psychotic fantasy is tied up into gun ownership and so you know it doesn't matter how many white kindergarten children are murdered it doesn't matter how many you know they're just the the cost of freedom. And if it, and if that is your analysis, um then I I I never see you being able to be moved. You know, as I was saying before, the New York Times this morning called the book mild and I'm really perplexed by this <laughs> because to call it mild you'd have to totally miss the race critique or maybe this is mild for some people. Um but what I what I write is that black Americans are also sold the false promise that if they too buy guns, they're going to have equality with white people under the second amendment. And I really, really, really take that down in the book to show that black Americans with guns is used as an anxiety trope 
to sell more guns to white people. <laughs> and it's really clear, even even when even when the shooting makes so clear where this is all taking us. And so we do see a lot of black Americans buying guns. And that's part of why I argue that the health paradigm is losing. The biggest, you know, most expansive body of gun owners now are black women, actually, and also liberals, progressives, and black Americans who for so long stood as like the hallmark, not just of Democrats, but of gun reform. They were like the people who always voted for gun reform because in the 90s, they had seen what guns did to their communities. But when so many white people started getting guns, they started saying, well, we better get guns as well. But this was, I mean, the NRA is a is an arms dealer. They're trying to arm both sides. And so what I show is the false promise is what we're selling to black Americans is not the promise of equality. If you get guns also, it's a way of stimulating more and better gun sales among white Americans. And to me, it's just such a vicious cycle because the outcomes are exactly what this shooting shows and reveals and reflects and portends, um, which is hierarchy and death. And, and so in a way, I'll, I'll say that ultimately what I, what I say is that the naked white body of the shooter, mm-hmm. as you say, is a reflection of American mm-hmm. choices and values in, in addition to a pathology of them. Yeah. And I just, you know, I, I would just add that, like, I don't think that black Americans believe that gun ownership is akin to equity. I think that black Americans are very aware that we will never fully ever be seen as equal in this country and that you're going to kill us if we're unarmed. You're going to kill us if we're armed. It doesn't really fucking matter. So at the end of the day, if I can do anything, any small thing to be able to protect my family was the thoughts of the Black Panthers and the reason why the Black Panthers were were armed and talked about um, the Second Amendment and their right to be full uh, citizens of this country. And it's just like, it doesn't matter whether or not you are peaceful or you are violent. The system of white supremacy that this country is built on is going to kill you, right? And that 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 to me, it's yeah. like, it's not, it's not the, the, oh, well, if I get this, then they will see me as a citizen. It's just like, it doesn't matter. Well, I'm gonna fall back on a public health trophy even after all this. And I'll say that, you know, there's also 40 years of research that shows that 65% of gun death is gun suicide and partner violence mm-hmm. and accidental shooting. So when you accept that logic, you're also inviting all these other risk factors. It really becomes like secondhand smoke. You're inviting all this risk into your house. So there's no good outcome about more armament. I really don't think for anybody in a way. Um, and, and but I of, of course I agree with you. I mean the whole book is about my agreeing with that point, which is just that there's this false promise that's always changing. But think about that cycle, right? The false promise of I might as well arm myself because the society's against me or the cops aren't going to protect me. I mean there was a lot of very direct marketing to black people after uh, the Floyd murder. Um, but then the cycle becomes then to white people, hey, you better arm yourself because look who else is getting guns and here's our latest gun, which shoots even more bullets, even more faster and stuff like that. And so in a way it just becomes this cycle, which, which I have to say just historical precedent for countries that go down that path. It just, it, it does not end well. And so in a way, um, you know, I have a piece in the Huffington post this morning that I, I, I'm not, I'm not being a total fatalist. I do think there's a moment now where we can change this. I think the implications of the 24 election are huge, huge. If, if, 
if we put more NRA Supreme Court judges, um, we're done. And so, yeah. you know, voting for Biden here with this, if you're voting on this issue, the, the choice is really clear. So I'm not saying everybody's the same, but, but I will say I want people to recognize how we got here so that it just, you know, it just feels like there's so much confusion now about how we got here. And I want to kind of open people's eyes a little bit. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jonathan, I tell you, you are a gift. You're a gift to our weekly Woke AF uh, commentary and conversation and your writing and your, your thoughtfulness. Um, and your hopefulness is is a gift to this movement. Um, so we, as always, really appreciate you and your time, folks. The book is What We've Become, and it is out now, so you should get it. And if you are in the New York area, come and see us at Greenlight Bookstore in Brooklyn on February 5th, where Jonathan will be signing books, reading from his books, and him and I will be in conversation. Super excited about that.
That is it for me today, dear friends, on Woke AF. As always, power to the people and to all the people power. Get woke and stay woke as fuck. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.